Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. October 5th through 9th, 2020 marks Malnutrition Awareness Week. As part of Malnutrition Awareness Week, we want to highlight some recently published papers that address components of enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS. So joining me today to discuss their paper are Dr. Robert Ackerman and Dr. Safali Patel, two of the authors of the paper entitled, How Sweet Is This? A Review and Evaluation of Preoperative Carbohydrate Loading and the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Model. This paper was originally published in the April 2020 issue of NCP. Dr. Robert Ackerman is with the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Management at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Patel is with the Department of Anesthesiology at the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. So thank you, Dr. Ackerman and Dr. Patel for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. Dr. Ackerman? I have nothing to disclose. And Dr. Patel? No disclosures. So Dr. Ackerman, I have a question for you. So we know that enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS involves many components, both nutritional and non-nutritional. And the goal is really kind of to hasten and improve recovery after surgery. So your paper focuses on one nutritional facet of the ERAS protocol, specifically providing a carbohydrate-containing drink just hours before surgery. So I want to just start with two simple basic questions. Where did the practice avoiding all food and drink at midnight before surgery ever start? And why was that dogma finally challenged and changed? That's a great question. And I think you really have to explore the history of medicine to see where it all started. I think there are many individuals with contributions to the nil paras or nothing by mouth practice. At the start, the first reported death under anesthesia was believed to be the result of asphyxiation, though it has been debated whether it was chloroform itself. Dr. John Snow, the famous epidemiologist, later described that patients should skip a meal prior to receiving chloroform as it can cause vomiting if there's food in the stomach. There's actually talk of the quote-unquote ether breakfast, which was just a cup of coffee or tea before surgery. The individual we highlighted in our review was Curtis Mendelson. He was an obstetrician at a New York hospital in the mid-20th century. He found that a fair number of his patients had their labor complicated by aspiration, particularly around the time of induction of general anesthesia. He noticed these patients had atelectasis, they suffocated, they had pulmonary edema, heart failure, several other serious complications. In one of his famous papers, he listed several recommendations. They included withholding food during labor, administering antacids, and then emptying the stomach prior to the induction of general anesthesia. He also found that aspiration was much more likely uh, with liquids compared to solids. There was a stronger inflammatory response afterwards. These patients had more hypoxic events, more bronchospasm, and more pulmonary edema. Around the same time, there were also several animal studies that found that aspiration of a very acidic gastric content correlated with more severe pulmonary complications. Mendelssohn's syndrome was later coined for the actual chemical pneumonitis that resulted from aspiration during anesthesia or labor. It wasn't until the late 80s or early 1990s where 
several researchers began to challenge this very restriction, the further examination of full stomach and aspiration prophylaxis. I think there were many reasons to challenge these restrictions, many of which were the, the unpleasant preoperative experiences that patients had, especially children. Some of the findings they found were no major difference in gastric pH or volume in patients that were given water a couple hours before surgery versus patients who fasted. And then given different types of liquids, whether it's orange juice, coffee, water, or nothing, these patients have very similar residual gastric volumes um, around two to three hours beforehand. Later on, several groups, such as the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society, and the European Society of Anesthesiology agreed with some general consensus recommendation and guidelines for preoperative fasting, and that's what we have today. They include the, the two-hour fasting period for clear liquids and the six-hour fasting period for a light meal. So, Dr. Patel, your paper specifically focuses on pre-op carbohydrate loading. So, I have kind of a two-part question. So the first part is, can you explain to our listeners what is and maybe what isn't carbohydrate loading in an ERAS protocol and what needs to be included in a pre-op beverage and in what amount or form for it to be effective carbohydrate loading? Yes, absolutely. And to understand what needs to be in it, I'm just going to kind of go over the idea of what it's used for. So the whole idea of carbohydrate loading before surgery is really to reduce the catabolic response to surgery. Surgery is a real stressor for the body, and every time a surgeon makes a cut, the body secretes epinephrine and mounts an entire neuroendocrine response. So the aim of carbohydrate loading is really to attenuate this inflammatory response. A lot of times I'll explain to my patients that this is kind of like preparing for a marathon. You know, you would never run a marathon on an empty stomach. So similarly, you don't really want to go into surgery dehydrated or hungry. You want to give your body what it needs to make it to the end of the race. So given that, so we really prefer that carbohydrate loading in a preoperative beverage is really done with a complex carbohydrate that will sustain you with, slow, with a slower release than, say, a simple carbohydrate. So what we recommend and what has been studied the most to be effective in the literature is a complex carbohydrate such as maltodextrin. And what we've used here at Moffitt and also what's been studied in the literature is in particular a 12% mixture of maltodextrin. And I would, I would say that's been the most effective to get the benefits of carbohydrate loading before surgery. So Dr. Patel, is there a reason that protein wasn't included in these beverages? So, because so many times we're focused on the protein and not necessarily the carbohydrate. Are there any other specific micronutrients that maybe should be in a pre-op beverage to enhance its benefits? So that's a great question. I think protein and micronutrients all have a place in preoperative nutrition, but not necessarily right before surgery where carbohydrates do. So protein is something that can be started many days and weeks beforehand to build muscle and then also after surgery for the next days and weeks to counteract the effects of surgery. But I think in the immediate preoperative period, especially since the body preferentially metabolizes carbohydrates, carbohydrates are really, you know, the most effective 
to do what we're looking at right now, which is attenuate the inflammatory response to surgery. And as far as micronutrients, there's another idea of immunonutrition before surgery, which is made up of nucleotides, arginine, and omega-3s. And those provide more of a decrease in infectious processes. So that is typically given about five days before surgery and then continued after surgery for five to seven days. You know, I think that there is a place for protein and micronutrients and immunonutrition, but just not right before surgery where you would have carbohydrate loading. So you kind of alluded to the reason for the pre-op carbohydrate loading, but what are the main benefits of doing that? The main benefits of pre-op carbohydrate loading are clinically your patients will have, have shown to have less hunger, thirst, malaise, anxiety, and nausea. And then medically, it's been shown to improve insulin resistance after surgery, which has been tied to a decreased risk of hyperglycemia, which has numerous effects with infection, wound healing, um, and other surgical outcomes. So Dr. Ackerman, kind of building on that, are there any patients in whom preoperative carbohydrate loading should be avoided or where the protocol should be altered, for instance, patients who have diabetes? I think that's a really interesting question. We as perioperative physicians want all the proposed benefits of preoperative carbohydrate loading that Dr. Patel just summarized. However, this has to be balanced against some of the unique risks for special populations, like the stress hyperglycemia, like the increased insulin administration, the wound infections, etc. And like you said, I think the first patient demographic that comes to mind are the diabetics. Surprisingly, though, the early data for this group is positive. There hasn't been a lot of evidence suggesting the delayed gastric emptying nor the increased insulin requirements or increased hyperglycemic events occurring postoperatively. I believe the strongest concern for diabetics are those that have the autonomic neuropathy and organ effects or the gastroparesis or any type of gastric dysmotility. Those are probably the highest concern of that subpopulation. Some people do suggest morbidly obese patients to be higher risk. I think the existing evidence of similar gastric emptying times compared to lean patients lends this to be a lesser concern, but still something to be mindful of. In general, any condition of delayed gastric emptying would be one in which I would either avoid carbohydrate loading or limit the extent to which it's applied. Some examples like neuromuscular disorders, opioid use, severe kidney liver disease, and trauma, especially uh, involving the vagus nerve. As an aside, I do believe this clinical question lends some benefit to the increasingly popular practice of POCUS, or point-of-care ultrasound. A focused gastric ultrasound can be particularly useful for further qualifying a patient's NPO status and risk for aspiration, especially when anesthesia or sedation is soon to be administered. The provider will look at the antrum of the stomach, it's most easily identified compared to other portions given its shape, its relatively low amount of air, and its location in the epigastrium. And then the provider can make some qualitative assessments of gastric content, empty stomach, clear fluid, thick fluid, or solids, and can further guide some of the medical decision-making there. I think you both have kind of given us a lot of hypothetical reason that we would want to try preoperative carb loading, but there's probably practical aspects to that too. So 
Dr. Patel, how well do patients and healthcare providers buy into this and what processes have you found that need to be in place for this kind of ERAS protocol to be successful? Well, you know, that's a great question. And surprisingly, patients actually really embrace it. I mean, to them, it makes sense. They worry so much that, you know, I haven't eaten or drank anything. You know, I don't feel good. And they're always very concerned when their surgery start times are later in the day and they hadn't had anything since midnight traditionally. And so the patients bought into this very quickly and have felt so much better. To to them, it just made sense. And as far as healthcare providers, that would be anesthesiologists and surgeons. I think after the evidence has come out over the past, um, you know, 10 years lately that this is safe, this is beneficial, I think, you know, these groups have really used this to optimize patients and to improve surgical outcomes. And so I think, you know, together between the patients and the anesthesiologists and surgeons, I think it's been a real success. As far as processes that have to be in place, I think that at any institute, three groups have to work very well to make ERAS or carbohydrate loading um, a real success. Those are nursing, anesthesiology, and surgery. As long as patients are hearing the same thing from each group and they're coordinating the directions, um, I think patients really appreciate being able to have something before surgery and, um, and do much better. So your paper that was published in NCP really does a good job of kind of highlighting the level of evidence for using pre-op carbohydrate loading for several specific surgeries. So Dr. Ackerman, what do you think is the future of evaluating or applying pre-op carbohydrate loading to the surgeries in which there's either little evidence or little use? Yeah, I I think this is one of the primary objectives for our author team when writing the review. We really wanted to highlight the specific surgeries or type of surgeries which were studied more frequently or thoroughly and directly compared them to the proposed recommendations. And with that, highlight where further study is needed most. There are strong recommendations for preoperative carbohydrate loading in abdominal and colorectal surgery, gynecologic, bariatric, urologic, and thoracic surgeries. However, it's really just in abdominal and gynecologic surgeries do we see a moderate amount of evidence supporting this. Much of the ERAS commentary for this extrapolation describes that the patient demographics are similar enough to the other groups that might have been studied more and that it would be deemed beneficial and worth the implementation while awaiting further study and further research to be published. One of the studies I found interesting was an examination of supposed higher stress surgeries. In this case was coronary artery bypass grafting as well as spinal decompression infusions. The hypothesis was a greater surgical stress would elicit a stronger inflammatory response and thus a higher perceived benefit and effect from the carbohydrate loading. This wasn't seen though. This wasn't a change in postoperative insulin sensitivity between the subgroups. The interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein biomarkers were equivocal. The fasting groups did have more anxiety, more hunger, more thirst, but no major difference in the insulin administration or perioperative hyperglycemia events. On the other end, there are several flagrant benefits of carbohydrate loading, like the reduced insulin resistance, the improved patient well-being, the promoted intravascular fluid status and uh, euvolemic state. They're all well-known and 
and demonstrated in several big papers and studies. Something that we'll probably learn more of as we study these different surgical subspecialties and surgery types are some of the more indirect effects of preoperative carbohydrate loading. Looking at more of that metabolic shift from fewer catabolic processes to more anabolism. Um, maybe those can be measured as increased hand grip strength or improved pulmonary function, such as a improved peak expiratory flow rate. All these things that just show some better conditioning, some better rehabilitation and other post-operative nutritional goals and outcomes. I think uh, there are many exciting studies in the pipeline now. Those are being conducted now and in the future and uh, be very interested to see the results. Before we close today, are there any additional comments that either of you would like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I think this is such an exciting time in surgery and in particularly in preoperative optimization of the surgical patient. You know, we've come such a long way, especially in the last 15 to 20 years, with surgery getting safer and patient outcomes becoming better, and nutrition is such a large part of it. And what we've discussed today, you know, with carbohydrate loading and immunonutrition and protein is really just the beginning, I think, of much more that we can do to make patients ready for surgery and to heal better and faster. So we really appreciate you having us to discuss this. I'd like to thank Dr. Ackerman and Dr. Patel. Thank you for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I invite our listeners to find out more about this topic of ERAS and many other nutrition topics in the journal Nutrition and Clinical Practice. And I hope that you all consider participating with Aspen in Malnutrition Week 2020. Finally, I want to recognize and thank Abbott Nutrition for their support of this podcast. I encourage our listeners to access the Aspen podcast channel to hear two other podcasts discussing recent ERAS publications. Additional ERAS education materials are available at www.nutritioncare.org slash M-A-W. Thank you for being with us today.